Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, struggling mightily, Wade, to come up with a better wordplay than electrifying to describe our (laughs) upcoming episode, and I don't know, I'm just failing. You know, Kevin, given our current situation, it's just not easy. Current situation. You came up with that just off the cuff, and it was better than anything (laughs) that I was able to think of. Well done. Well, Kevin, I'm excited about this show. It is going to be electrifying. We look at the new film from Michael Amareta, Tesla. We're also going to be continuing our Summer of Darkness Film Noir Marathon with a trip to France, appropriately enough. We're going to be reviewing Louis Mallet's Elevator to the Gallows. Listeners, we promise to not leave you hanging. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 260 of Seeing and Believing. Is nature a gigantic cat? And if so, who strokes its back? May I introduce the brilliant Nikola Tesla, the greatest inventor of the age. If you Google Nikola Tesla, you get 34 million results. It's basically just four pictures. Beyond that, things get murky and more imaginative. Thomas Alva Edison. Got a light? Oh, Tesla. Didn't see you there before. I now have the pleasure of introducing you to a novel system of energy, alternate currents. This will transform the way the world works. No No sparks. sparks. It's perfect. Where have you been hiding? Alternating current is a waste of time. Impractical and deadly. You live in your head. Doesn't everyone? You lack funding. Mr. Tesla thinks I owe him money. What was it, $50,000? Yes. Anne Morgan, daughter of J. Pierpont Morgan. A woman like that can make all your dreams come true. All my dreams are true. (laughs) You want lemonade? Listeners, that was a clip from Tesla. We're going to hop into our review in a moment. Kevin, we're back. We've got a new film that's being released. We're going to talk about that this week. And we're continuing our Summer of Darkness. We're looking at Noir. And this time we go across the Atlantic and take a peek at a French Noir, a classic, Elevator to the Gallows. I'm excited to talk to you about this movie, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. After a week off, I was kind of missing our our chats about about these films, and especially the film noirs that we've been making a journey through over the past few weeks. So yeah, this is going to be a good one. Yeah, you know, we took a week off because uh, I was moving, and I just I miss watching on screen murder. So we're we're back now. Uh, <laughs> With our, with our Noor. This week's episode, however, begins with a peek at Michael Amareta's new film, Tesla. 
Before we hop into our review, here's the movie's official synopsis. Visionary inventor Nikola Tesla, played by Ethan Hawke, fights an uphill battle to bring his revolutionary electrical system to fruition, then faces the thornier challenges with his new system for worldwide wireless energy. Kevin, in the past, we've lamented stale, perfunctory biopics. You remember these. Our listeners remember these. They're films that end usually with a standing ovation. Well, Tesla looks to burn all of these to the ground with a unique take on the famous, though largely mysterious, inventor. So, Kevin, to get us started today, in your opinion, does Tesla shine in its unorthodox presentation, or does the movie's enigmatic take further obscure an already obscure character? Well, you're definitely right that this is a film that cannot be accused of being conventional in in any sense. This is a movie that, you know, has one of the characters who's both a character uh, in the drama of Tesla's life and also a narrator and also somebody who's kind of situated in the modern day who's Googling things for the audience as we go through the story of Tesla's (laughs) life. This is not a paint-by-numbers biopic by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I you know, it, it's interestingly almost a hybrid of a, a fictional, a, a lightly dramatized biopic and a documentary. These narrated portions aren't simply uh, situated in the time of Tesla. It's not as if the narrator is talking about his life and her uh, place in his story as as she's experiencing it. It's something that she's doing from outside of, of that context. And the fourth wall is broken quite frequently as she speaks to us, the audience. And that gives El Moreda's film a really interesting, unique texture. And I, I really appreciate it for that. I don't think that it's entirely successful maybe it does at it feels at times as if it's a little bit it's struggling to find a way to make this hybrid structure uh, that it's chosen for itself work but i do really appreciate the the risks that it takes and there are a few scenes here that i think really uh, don't necessarily make me understand Tesla, the the historical figure, any better than I did before, but it does really seem like a film that, paradoxically for talking about a figure of the late 19th century, feels very much of a piece with the cinema of the early 21st century. And for a forward-thinking historical figure like Tesla, that somehow feels appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost saying, hey, what if all of his dreams were realized in his lifetime? What would that look like? I, I, am, I find it difficult to be mad at a movie like this because it is so unconventional and because it swings for the fences. I... I found it uh, equal parts illuminating and, and probably equal parts uh, frustrating because as strange, and I use that word enigmatic as this movie is, it can also be kind of dull. But if we're speaking about the traditional biopic formula, 
it it not only breaks that mold, but it comments on that mold. So there are conversations that take place and characters chat. There's one probably in the second half of the movie uh, between Tesla and between Thomas Edison. And they talk about their relationship. They talk about their inventions. And then the narrator says, oh, that, that actually didn't happen. And then um, we learn with other scenes, okay, it didn't actually go that way. While you're watching it, it, it does feel natural because in these biopics, writers all of the time, they have to recreate scenes so we understand the context and we can, we can grapple with a piece of information in one scene over, you know, multiple scenes. So it is kind of funny how it plays, it plays with the mold. I, I think my biggest issue with the film, and, and I was trying to really just corner that issue, is the character of Tesla himself. And I go back and forth with Ethan Hawke's performance. So I think I think he I think he turns in a a pretty good Tesla. Uh, I don't know if he turns in a good character. Uh, Tesla was socially awkward, um, kind of kind of slippery from what I know about him, and the film definitely communicates that. Ethan Hawke does a fine job of of trying to portray someone who who exists almost in another plane of existence, uh, someone who is somehow disjointed from this world. And yet, at the same time, I say, he, I don't know if he plays the character well, because this character is hard for us to grasp. His motivations, his uh, even inner life, uh, why he does what he does. Does he do it simply because he sees images in his brain and because he wants to invent? Uh, does he do it for recognition? It's it's hard it's hard to feel that maybe we're told some of those things but I don't know if it's fleshed out the way that he should which is difficult because this character is kind of strange he is a recluse he is socially awkward and in his life during his life people they just couldn't connect with him and I felt the same way with this film I I couldn't connect with a character like I think I I needed to yeah uh, I like. Hawk's performance in in this film. I think he's he is playing Tesla as a as a very withdrawn person, which uh, by all accounts is relatively fitting with the actual man. And the way Hawk for me is able to suggest like e- even with this withdrawn character, it, he's not he's not a bland character. It's very it seems like it's very easy for uh, and a character who's very, very shy, very reticent to kind of come off as not really having personality traits. And I don't think that Hawk falls into that trap with uh, this version of Tesla. He has a very, you know, a very withdrawn body language. Uh, and his voice is always just kind of this this very low rumble. He he changes his voice for what you'd expect from seeing him in a in a film where he's more effusive, like in, for instance, in Boyhood or in the the before films. Here he's really changed his physicality and his voice to fit this character in what I think is a pretty effective way. There are some scenes here where you get the sense that Tesla's got this incredible ambition and passion for discovery, 
welling up inside him, but there's something in his personality that doesn't want to let it out fully. So it comes out in just this very low ebb, but very intense murmur that, that Hawk uses that I think is pretty effective. I think maybe the, the larger problem that you're kind of putting your finger on here, Wade, is that uh, Almereda's script, which which he wrote uh, in addition to directing it, is I, I don't think it really manages to bring the audience into uh, the character in in the way that would be fully satisfying to us. So I think that Hawk is performing what he's been given very well, and I think it's effective as far as it goes. I think the problem is that the screenplay doesn't go far enough in explaining Tesla to us. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I it th- there needs to be yeah there needs to be something more. And uh, Ethan Hawk, I mean he's he's always great. So I, I think I should give him the benefit of the doubt. But it it's just. It is difficult because this character lives within his head. And this movie, Tesla, is a, it's a fantasy picture. We get some strange, odd elements that are meant to communicate abstractions and ideas. Uh, but I don't know if they ever really tell us what's happening inside of him. And, and, and that's, that's a shame because there are there are some really unique moments uh, throughout the movie. Uh, we get uh, characters, uh, usually Tesla, played by Hawk, uh, walking across a background, and it's it's clearly a green screen uh, or rear projection. And we know he's supposed to be in a place, and yet the film is constantly kind of bringing us back to the use of technology when making this movie. And bringing us back to this is a, a recreation. This is an interpretation. And uh, there are some fun things that the movie can do to, to play with that. I think one of those is helping us to kind of understand his career in a way that you wouldn't get from a textbook. And I, I found myself kind of becoming a little more frustrated as the movie went on, especially in the second half, because... Tesla is unable to complete many of the projects that he begins. And it's even a little bit difficult at times to track the plot of the movie, what he's working on, why he's working on it. And I think that's by design. I think we are supposed to embed ourselves in his, in the frustration of his career. And it really does feel like he is everywhere but nowhere it feels like he is uh, trying things and it's just it's it's not working out so there are elements there that i think bring out the character of tesla or at least bring out his story uh, but we, we 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 need more than that in order to um, relate to him in order to feel sorry for him uh, which is funny because we get kind of the opposite of uh kyle mclaughlin's um Thomas Edison. Uh, he is a lively character. He's a fun character. We know he's a bit of a scra- scoundrel, uh, but sometimes it's it's easy to like him because he is he's just kind of he's there. He's lively, uh, and we just don't get that with Tesla. Yeah, there's. I think this is maybe where the the hybrid structure that I was talking about earlier kind of ends up making the film feel a little bit shapeless. There's a sense to this picture that. Uh, Almereda is kind of taking us through various episodes 
in Tesla's life almost in the same way that a Wikipedia article would. Like this happened and then this happened and then he met this person and then this partnership was formed. And then the film kind of almost just kind of ends. It doesn't really feel like there's any sort of discernible structure or shaping being done of Tesla's life, which on one hand, I kind of, I want to be charitable toward just because you and I, how many times have, have we bemoaned all the biopics we've seen that sort of try to <laughs> yeah. jam, it, f- force a structure onto a complex life, right? You know, like the, mm-hmm. the, the usual, you know, they were troubled as a child. They had this, this issue with their parents. They rose to stardom. Then they, you know, had trouble with drugs. Then, you know, they went downhill and then they kind of got better and came, had a comeback. You know, that's sort of, it's such a, almost a cliched structure that I don't want to give a film that doesn't adhere to that structure a, a very hard time, but it's difficult to ignore the the fact that this, the way this film is telling the story, it doesn't really seem like Almereda really knows how to how to make it pop for the audience. The The final line of the film is all about how Tesla outlived all of his rivals. He was forward thinking. He didn't finish every, every experiment or succeeded every experiment he attempted, but the, the way that he dreamed of, of the future is something that those of us who are living in his future can appreciate, which is functions as a nice little thesis for the rest of the film. I think the problem is that thesis doesn't really seem to be borne out in the previous action. It's sort of a bunch of episodes that then ends with a thesis statement, but it kind of, it, it's got the feel almost of a of a book report. And it's unfortunate because Almereda is really doing a lot of interesting things here, like you said, with his visuals and with almost this Brechtian way of making us aware all times that we're watching a movie about Tesla, a movie which was, you know, we're, we're watching something that was made possible by technology that, uh, that was, that had its birth at the same time as Tesla was doing his work. And that's really interesting. I just don't think that the screenplay really rises to the level of the direction or the performances. Yeah. And there's some, there's some interesting themes here. I, I think the the theme of artistry and it seems odd to say that about his inventions but there is an artistry to them artistry versus business and thomas edison definitely follow falls on the business side of things so there's that theme and we see him kind of struggling with that throughout the movie and i appreciate uh, uh those particular ideas also there is a sequence and in the grand scheme of things it feels a little bit odd but i thought it was pretty pretty good and that is electricity used to execute criminals and we see the first criminal who is executed on the electric chair and things don't go very well and you get the sense that as people invent things or send them out in the world even if they don't necessarily desire them to be used in a particular way they can be hijacked and good can come of them, but also great evil. They, they are not, technology is not always neutral, if that makes any sense. And then there were some other themes that I 
I thought were uh, not explored all too well. So at, at one point, uh, he talks about how the world is a giant machine. And then we have a, a character who's close to him. And she talks about how she felt her cousin kind of lingering after death in the current in electric light. So there's this connection between uh, technology and spirituality and, and the idea that technology it could be poised to replace uh, religion. And, you know, we used to believe that the world operated a certain way. And now, you know, we can manipulate those forces and uh, we don't need God anymore. But I, I don't know if the movie ever really worked into that realm. And so I see, I see a number of ideas. I see some of them are explored pretty well and then others are not. But as a whole, when you get the movie that wraps it up in, a, in this thesis statement at the end, I, I just, like you, I just didn't feel like it, it got to that place or it earned that. Uh, and it seemed a, a bit odd given the movie that had come before it. it you know, it's interesting because they're, the, the screenplay, even though, you know, I, I've taken it to test for kind of feeling a little shapeless, there is this almost literary quality to the speeches that the characters give. Uh, oh, you know, again and again, there, there are these scenes that have just a wonderful turn of phrase. You mentioned the that scene already where one woman talks about flipping the light switch on and feeling her her dead relative kind of in the current, in the light. And that kind of sense that there's almost this, for them, the technology is so new and so mysterious, there's a spiritual quality to it. And uh, that's followed up by Tesla uh, saying that he thinks of machines as not the opposite of humanity. Like there, there's no dichotomy where there's the human uh, people and then there's the inhuman machines. He says that he thinks of machines as extensions of people. And that's just such a, a wonderful idea, especially as the film goes on and draws out a little bit more of the way that one reason that Tesla failed uh, or, or was, wasn't was as big of a success in his life as he wanted to be is that he just had so much that he wanted this technology to be able to do for the benefit of people. And it was so deeply personal to him because this technology was essentially an extension of himself. Meanwhile, these, these other figures like Thomas Edison, like uh, J.P. Morgan, played by a really great Donny Keshawars. I thought uh, his performance was was very wonderful. Th these are people who kind of, they, they care about money or self-promotion more than just about anything else. Whereas Tesla is dreaming of ways we can talk to other planets and send messages to the other side of the globe, J.P. Morgan just wants his technology because he wants to know what the stock figures are while he's in Cairo. You know, like that's that kind of contrast that Elmerita draws uh, between these two ways of looking at this technology are really interesting. And I just, I wish that the screenplay had been able to make those ideas gel more and make them feel like, less like kind of one-off scenes and more like uh, an entire woven fabric. Yeah, yeah, because uh, 
Everybody wants to rule the world, Kevin. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, that's a great scene. I, I, yeah, there's this there's this scene. Uh, we get some tears for fears, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's but it's pretty good. And I think I think the movie even could have leaned into that uh, a little bit more. But I do I I'm on I'm on board. I'm tracking with you on the episodic nature of this movie, and sometimes that works. Uh, here, not as much. But like I said, I'll say it again. Uh, given Given the usual biopics that we see on a yearly basis, I will take something like this over those, uh, and and I appreciate uh, the uh, just the unusual nature of this. And yeah, he he swung for the fences on this one, even though it didn't quite uh, you know scale the wall. Uh, it's it's not bad, listeners. That is our review of Tesla. It is currently playing in select theaters and on demand, so you can watch that film today from your home let us know what you think about it you can tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod you can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com we would love to hear your thoughts don't go anywhere we're going to be talking about elevator to the gallows here in just a moment song is water by h3h h4h listeners we are so excited to uh, be a part of your weekly routine and we very much appreciate all of you who supported us via our patreon campaign it's really easy just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and we've got a number of great perks a number of donation levels. And Kevin, one of our favorite donation levels is the what can you buy for $5 level. What could someone buy for 5 bucks? $5 would get you a gigantic, comically oversized cartoon mallet. <laughs> so now, was it this year that we reviewed the Harley Quinn movie with Margot Robbie? Was that this year? Mm-hmm. Okay. It seems like years and years ago, but it was actually just about six months ago. <laughs> I legitimately can't remember what year it came out. Um, but that would have been really good for that film. If you had that, you could kind of act it out while, while <laughs> you're watching the movie. Yeah. You know, the thing that actually brought giant mallets to mind was... Um, Edgar Wright on Twitter was was posting a whole lot about uh, it being the anniversary of Scott Pilgrim versus the World, okay. and I was I was thinking of uh, Ramona's uh, giant giant mallet from from that movie, the Mary Elizabeth Winstead character. It's it's a movie that I've been wanting to revisit just because it's got such crazy energy to it. Oh but. yeah. 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 I guess I've got mallets on the brain. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen that movie in a couple of years and it's it's one I definitely need to uh, revisit. Uh, listeners, get your mallets, uh, get your uh, Patreon subscriptions. Just hop on over to just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing 
underscore podcast. And Kevin, I'm really excited because we're a part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network, and a number of Christ and Pop Culture writers are releasing books in in the next couple of weeks, and it's just I, I don't know, it's it's extremely exciting. Uh, one of them is Luke Harrington. Uh, many of our listeners are probably uh, familiar with his work on the site, but his book, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed, releases on August 25th. I've pre-ordered the book. I am so excited, Kevin, to check this out. Uh, this is this has been on my to-read list for some time, and it's finally out in the wild here here soon. Yeah, you know, I feel like that book's been on my radar for a while just because, you know, having known Luke for, for a while now, you and I both have heard about it as he's been writing it and then as he's been shopping it around. So it's so great to see it finally come to fruition and ready to go out into the wild. And I got to say, I also dig some of the promotional work that Luke's been doing for that book around uh, around Twitter and other spaces, just, you know, po- pictures of dismembered teddy bears and action figures uh, lying in the street. I I don't know. I don't know what it is about that, but it, it amuses me. So I'm looking forward to, to reading it too. Yeah, it's exciting. So listeners, make sure to check that out. August, almost said October, August 25th, uh, it releases and you can pre-order it now. So you do that. And then Kevin, there's also a- another book uh, by an author uh, from Christ and Pop Culture that's that's being released. It's out there. It's It's live. I think of the time of this recording today, yesterday it came out, and uh, I'm excited to read this book because it has to do with C.S. Lewis, and I like C.S. Lewis a lot, even though it's kind of cliche to like C.S. Lewis. I still like him a lot. <laughs> yeah, St. Clive, as we call him in evangelical and Protestant spaces. Uh, yeah, our very own Gina D'Alfonso actually has a a book that's, that, like you said, just came out titled Dorothy and Jack. And it's all about the uh, little-known friendship between uh, C.S. Lewis, who you know lots of people know, and perhaps an unjustly lesser-known uh, writer and thinker, Dorothy Sayers, who might be best known for her mystery stories, the Miss Marple uh, mysteries, but also wrote and thought a lot about some pretty heady topics as well. So uh, that book, again, is titled Dorothy and Jack, The Transforming Friendship of Dorothy L. Sayers and C.S. Lewis, written by Gina D'Alfonso. And I mean, I'm I'm as excited about this as I am about the, the Murder Bears book, Wade. It's just, it's great to see Christ pop culture writers uh, bring their books into the world. Right, there there are books for everyone. Uh, C.S. Lewis lovers, uh, also people uh, who want to look at. I, I'm looking at the synopsis. It says poop jokes in the Bible, uh, so it's a little something for everybody. In in, in the Murder Bears book, I, I <laughs> yes. to add, not the C.S. Lewis book. <laughs> Listeners, thanks again for supporting us. And as always, you can send us your feedback if you've read some of these books. Make sure to let us know and also share them. I, I would love for the authors to see uh, all of us really kind of sharing their work. Make sure to do that. You can do it at Pod. Tag us. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com.
Welcome back to the second half of our show, and we're going to be returning to uh, darkness and plans gone wrong and rainy urban streets, Wade, because it's the next movie in our Summer of Darkness marathon. Get excited. Yeah. Well, we talked about murder bears. Uh, This is just straight murder. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. This has been a fun series and I make I'm pumped to uh, to leave kind of golden age Hollywood for a little bit and and to expand uh, and we find ourselves in France today yeah the first major film noirs of course were made in in America in the Hollywood system but the term itself obviously is French it was coined by French critics in the mid 1940s to describe the mode that these films were working in. So it's fitting, Wade, that we take some time to cross the Atlantic and look at a French entry in the noir category. Elevator to the Gallows is a story that's notable for launching the careers of two cinematic luminaries, director Louis Mallet and star Jeanne Moreau, and for featuring a memorable soundtrack by jazz legend Miles Davis. As a story, it features a lot of the same touch points that are familiar to many noirs, in which a doomed couple embark upon a murder plot that starts off as what seems like the perfect crime and quickly reveals itself as anything but. But as a cinematic experience, Malay's film kind of acts almost as a hinge point between the era of classical noir, which a lot of critics say ended in the same year that this film was released, 1958, and the French New Wave, which uh, started in the late 1950s and continued on with the careers of such luminaries as Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, and others. Noir had a great influence on those later films, and you can see a lot of the same elements in this picture as well. So my question for you, Wade, to get us started is, obviously, like I said, this is a recognizably noir film, but it does have a different flavor to it. And I'm wondering what differences you saw as you were watching this one and how those differences worked for you in your noir journey that we've been taking during this series. Yeah, so I I did a little background on on the film because you don't you don't hear about this when you learn about the French New Wave. At least I, I didn't. And I was listening to a couple of people reading a couple of people, and some of them suggest that it's because this film was released in the United States later uh, than something like Breathless or 400 Blows, which were made, they were, those films were made after this. And so maybe that's why people don't categorize it as French New Wave, but you see those elements here, and it's it's kind of fascinating to watch um, the mashup, uh, the Truffaut, the Hitchcock together. And just immediately uh, upon watching this movie, uh, foreign film noir, it seems like, spends less time on plot and more time on what happens beneath the surface. And I, I, I see that here. And also... Uh, what I found fascinating is this film's femme fatale, right? And, and you mentioned her, uh, Moreau. Uh, she's kind of passive here. And I really love the scenes where she's just kind of walking along these Paris streets and lit by this natural ambiance of, of the city. And, and that's a, that's a different take than Barbara Stanwyck uh, that we, we talked about last week with Double Indemnity. But I, 
I enjoy kind of this, I wouldn't say mashup, but it does feel like a number of elements are being mixed together to where you don't get a direct import from golden age Hollywood. You get something that's that's different. And um, yeah, so those are the things that stood out to me uh, immediately. What about you, Kevin? The thing that really uh, struck me in in this film is is the way it begins it almost begins kind of having skipped the first act of a lot Hell of yeah. american noirs yeah. like in a lot of you know taking double indemnity is sort of a, a prime example you you kind of start off getting introduced to the hero you you know that something's gone wrong but then there's a flashback and you kind of get to watch it go wrong like you you start off with walter at the beginning of the film, he's just an insurance salesman. He meets the femme fatale. They make a plot, and then things kind of escalate and then go downhill for both of them. In this film, it's we that entire first act is cut off. We we first see the hero as he's literally putting on the gloves to murder the man <laughs> yeah. that Moreau's character uh, has has asked him to murder. In this case, it's her husband. He's going to to murder him, make it look like a suicide. They're going to run off together. We don't see any of that plan making. Uh, Malay throws us right into the midst of the action, and we're off to the races. It's not important so much what these characters' pasts are. What's important here is now that they're in the thick of things, what what happens next, and uh, what wrong turns take them to the proverbial gallows. And I, I thought that was a really interesting choice. And it's, I don't know, it's different from a lot of American wars because the origin story doesn't matter so much. And also there's this interest in process. So one of one of my favorite films kind of of the same era is uh, Rafifi, which is just a, a just wonderful uh, uh, heist film. And that film, of course, is really famous for this extended sequence that's totally wordless where you see a group of criminals break into uh, a bank vault. In this one, it's kind of similar. We watch uh, this this character, uh, Tavernier, played by Maurice Ronet. He, he you know, uses a grapple hook. He scales up the to the next floor of the building that he's in. He meets his boss. They exchange some chat. He kills him. He stages the suicide. He lets himself out by using a pen knife to make sure the door locks behind him. Uh, it, it all seems so perfect. And then he, in his rush, leaves the grapple hook behind. And in his haste to go retrieve it later, <laughs> yeah. he gets stuck in the elevator, which is just so darkly comic. But it, it also feels like in, in this universe that Malay's created, it's almost like God sees what this man has done, and he's not going to let him get away with it. It's wonderful. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because it also uh, this film also reminds me the beginning reminds me of uh, Bresson's A Man Escaped, just kind of this meticulous. Uh, well, a man's escaping and a man escaped, but this is someone who's sneaking into murder, and you you learn as you go, and I appreciate that. You you begin to learn about this man. Who is this guy? Uh, well, he's an arms dealer, and he's probably not a good person, and they're they're killing him, which is obviously wrong, uh, but it's, it's a little complicated. I, I, I say that. You, you, you start to feel for the guy because everything's happening at once. It, it's, it's really interesting, too. Uh, we talked about film noir and characters kind of being pushed along by social forces. And this is something 
that uh, resists heartily uh, the idea of human agency and even something like free will. I mean, it's just really fascinating. These characters are attempting to change their fate, uh, to take on new identities. There's there's a, a subplot involving a couple of young uh, adults, and they are literally taking on the identities of other individuals. They try to exhibit personal freedom, and none of that goes well. It does not, it, it, nothing works out. There's even a couple that tries to, they try to kill themselves and they can't do it. And it is like there's this cosmic force, like you mentioned, Kevin, that says, no, you're not going to change your fate. Like this, this is, this is the path that you're on and there's nothing that you can do about it. You are locked into this box and we see that kind of visually play out. So it is fascinating to see how uh, these noir elements are kind of mixed into this story. And it, I would say this one feels almost a little bit darker than some of the others that, that we've explored simply because they're, it's not that these characters, uh, there's a way out. They just make the wrong choices. It's like, it doesn't really matter what you do. Um, you can't change your fate. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah, that fatalism that you highlight is just so quintessentially noir. The 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 fact that your sin will find you out, uh, everyone's guilty in some way, and the punishment will will fit the crime, and uh, that just seems like it's played out to a T here. And it's almost it, again, it it feels less like. An unfeeling universe in this film, it feels less like, you know, fate, some disembodied force kind of has it out for these characters. It seems like there's a, a conscious intelligence wanting to make sure that they pay for their crimes somehow. Just the the sheer diabolic fix that Julian Tavernier uh, finds himself in where because he's stuck in an elevator uh, on his way to retrieve the, the evidence that ties him to the murderer he actually committed— that leaves him without an alibi for the murder that he is mistakenly framed for. And it's just so diabolical because he can't free himself from the guilty rap from one crime without uh, outing himself as the guy who committed the other crime. And it's, again, there's this dark comedy almost inherent in that that just... It, do, it doesn't feel unique to this film by any means, but it, it feels different from the other noirs we've watched in this series so far. Yeah, well, and I like to see how the relationship is explored because, as you mentioned, it, it's as if the first um, act of this movie is, is gone. Uh, but we know that Florence apparently loves Julian. He loves her. They love each other so much that he is willing to commit murder for her. And yet... The, up until the very end, we we never see them together. At at most, at uh, the beginning of the film, they're they're talking on the phone, and then there's this this great this great way to kind of bl- bring them together, and that's through photos. And so we we finally at the very end of the movie, we see them in a series of photos, and it's funny how the photos play into the overall plot and how just the image of them together brings about their demise. Um, but we, 
we get the passion without actually seeing the passion. And, and, and that's really, that's really unique to, uh, to Noir. And I mentioned to this sort of femme fatale, um, character type. I, I, I will say this. I, I, I'm not head over heels in love with this movie. Uh, as much as I am with In a Lonely Place or Double Indemnity. I think part of that is um, the the movie cuts to, for for a large portion of the film, to a, a group of uh, young adults, uh, a young couple, and they actually steal uh, Julian's car, and which sets into motion uh, all these other, you know, strange series of events. Um, I, I didn't ever feel like uh, we truly got to know them. Uh, I felt like I was at a distance from them. And uh, they definitely feel like they fall into the archetype of the unhappy character, especially the unhappy man that we see in noir films. And uh, we, we follow them along and we get these almost clinical type conversations. They run into a German couple. Um, the, the German man talks about how uh, the Nazis are, I guess they were just kind of business people um, wearing uniforms. Uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, but I don't, I don't ever get inside this restlessness that, that's supposed to be in, inside of them. I don't get into the malaise. And as a result, uh, I thought the, the beginning of the movie was incredible. Uh, the middle kind of slowed down for me. Uh, but then the last half an hour was, uh, it really was wonderful. You know, it, it's interesting because as you're watching the film for the first time, as as I was, this was my first time seeing this film. the The section with the with the young couple at first, you are a little bit impatient with it. With it, you're just not as interested. They 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 don't. There doesn't seem to be much specificity to them. It's just sort of like the kind of almost a textbook, you know, disaffected youth with the with the leather jacket and distrusting authority and. And all of that, and uh, you know his his young girlfriend who's along for for the ride, and they get into some you know, a little bit of trouble, but it doesn't seem all that serious. And you're kind of almost tapping your foot, like wondering why are they in this movie? Why can't we get back to what we came for? And then when Malay springs the the trap on on Julian by the fact that this young couple's crimes are the ones that he's going to get blamed for unless he comes clean about what he's actually guilty about. That is, I, I, I kind of, that redeemed it for me. Even though I was impatient with it at first, that that twist was something that I didn't necessarily see coming and which I enjoyed immensely. Just again, because of the, the diabolical cleverness of it, almost as if there's just this this hangman pulling the strings of the, of the plot and just sort of chuckling to himself as he makes sure the characters get tangled up in their own schemes and and can't really escape. There's also, you know, speaking of this being a, a hinge point between classical noir and the French New Wave, you see a lot of this film's DNA in uh, in Breathless, where again you get the the young couple in that film who kind of they commit a crime and they kind of it's all for them it's almost a lark like they go off on this adventure and you know the the fact that they're going to get caught is always present, but it's not really foremost among their concerns. And it feels like the relationship between 
Louis and the uh, the flower shop girl, his his girlfriend in this film, kind of feel almost like a prototype of that relationship. So that's kind of it's interesting to to make that connection when viewing this film in its historical context. Yeah, yeah, I'm I. I've not been a huge fan of, of Breathless, and I know that that some people would would likely take my film uh, criticism card away after saying that. But <laughs> it, it's not one of my favorite Goddard films. I'm I I I I've, it's fine. I found it hard to get into Goddard at times. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's a really good uh, comparison. A, a couple things I want to note: the soundtrack. Uh, which is really wonderful that the, the trumpet heavy Miles Davis score uh, and just those scenes where we get Moreau and we're, we're just kind of following her around and we get these kind of tracking shots um, at times even shallow depth of field uh, emphasizing just just her impatience her sorrow her grief and what they're doing her and Julian, what they're doing is wrong, um, but we definitely understand in some ways kind of the nature of the relationship. And then probably the the most popular images from the film uh, come from the interrogation scene where instead of it being in a cell or a typical interrogation scene, uh, we get a table and behind these characters is just a a a black backdrop it's almost like this endless room uh, which further accentuates the idea of a, a lack of agency as well as this character situation and it it visually uh, it's it's just really fantastic uh, a lot of a lot of good things we could say about this movie yeah that scene where he's being interrogated where it's almost like he's just in this negative space this abyss and he's he's utterly trapped because the policemen keep asking him well where were you what's your alibi if you didn't commit this crime what were you doing instead and the real answer is i was in an elevator to go retrieve the evidence of the murder i actually did commit but he can't say it so he's just the the way he squirms and the way that he's just uh, boxed in by that darkness is again it's just it's quintessentially noir at the same time it's remarkable how the 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 jazz score gives this film a completely different feel from the uh you know the 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 strings and kind of the the classical hollywood soundtrack that we're so used to hearing because it it lends this film less of a uh, a grandeur, and there's almost this ennui to it instead. You know, Jeanne Moreau walking through the the smeary, rain-streaked Parisian streets with this the score playing on the soundtrack. She's got you know that that very French scowl on her face, and the the way that that kind of sets the tone for the film, where it's less about sort of this Dostoevsky and crime and punishment sort of feel, but it's more like these are characters that are very bad and that makes them miserable and they can't do anything about about it other than feel that guilt and then pay for it when the time comes which again it's it's a different it's a different angle into noir but it still feels very appropriate to noir 
Yeah, no, it, it, it does. And I'm really glad that we were able to talk about this film and, uh, and just explore some of the different influences of noir and the different definitions. And I'm excited about next week, too. Well, I guess we can go ahead and just kind of release it. We're going to be looking at uh, Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Going back to classic Hollywood and 1953, but I think this film uh, is going to offer another angle on our noir conversation. And listeners... We would love to get your thoughts on our Summer of Darkness. Let us know what you think. If you have a chance to catch Elevator to the Gallows, uh, send us your thoughts. Also, we're still open for suggestions. I know we're going to be looking at a neo-noir film, and we've got a couple other ideas, uh, but we'd love to get your thoughts, your feedback. What noir movies uh, would you like us to uh, talk about uh, and maybe even discover uh, in this marathon? So make sure to do that. I'm excited about next week's The Hitchhiker. Kevin, I have not seen that movie, so I'm I'm pumped about watching it for the first time. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting that we've we've you know we we talk so much about femme fatales and and noir and all of that, and it's going to be very interesting to watch an entry in the in the uh, in the film noir subgenre, if you will, that's been directed by a woman. I'm really I haven't seen this film, and I'm really excited to see how that inform some of these classic tropes that we're so familiar with oh yeah yeah i'm gonna have my pen and pad out and just really kind of mark down what what are these tropes and how does this movie interact with those and uh to see this film directed uh this year at at 1953 i think it's going to be a a fascinating discussion listeners make sure once again to send us your thoughts at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod you can also do that at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you as always by christ and pop culture and our patreon supporters our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen make sure to rate and review us on itunes subscribe on spotify itunes stitcher wherever you get your podcasts i'm wade bearden my co-host is kevin mcclinathan and until next time this is seeing and believing You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.